Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Today's guest has been a correspondent on The Daily Show since 2015. He also happens to be one of the funniest stand-up comics in the game. We hate learning new stuff. We don't even like updating our cell phone. That's how much we hate learning new stuff. You got a damn $1,000 phone in your pocket right now. Every week, your phone send you a message and be like, hey, man, if you hit this button, I'll be a better phone. <laughs> and what we do, fuck that, maybe later. This is The Last Laugh. I'm Matt Wilstein from The Daily Beast, and that was Roy Wood Jr. from his most recent stand-up special, No One Loves You. I've been a huge fan of Roy's work on The Daily Show with Trevor Noah over the past five and a half years, but he really comes alive on the stand-up stage, so I was pumped to find out that he is planning to tape and release a brand new hour on Comedy Central later this year. And like everyone else during the pandemic, he's got a new podcast. It's called Roy's Job Fair, and it's really unlike any other comedy podcast out there. This was just such a fun and thoughtful conversation, so let's get right to it. Here's me with Roy Wood Jr. All right. Thanks for coming on and doing this. It's exciting. It's the day of your your podcast premiere. Yes. Roy's Job Fair. (laughs) Available now. As I put the finishing touches on some social media assets. Oh, nice. Because that's very important. Probably a little too hands on. And I know I should hire someone. <laughs> if you're available, reach out. I like to do it my way first and then have you copy that. Yeah. Well, well, we'll definitely get to talking about the podcast, your podcast. But I wanted to actually start by thanking you for, um, you know, people listening don't know this, but about a year ago when the pandemic started, you really did me a solid and helped me out finding comedians to talk about what life was like at the beginning of the pandemic for a piece that I wrote for the Daily Beast. And you were you were just instrumental in, in connecting me with people for that. And it was at this time when, when this podcast was kind of on hiatus because we still didn't know how we were going to tape it, uh, not in a studio. I didn't even have this microphone yet. We were, we were figuring it out. So, uh, <laughs> so I was basically just calling up, calling up there. comedians, you know, desperately trying to get them to talk to me about, uh, about what this new reality was like. So, so yeah, thanks for, for doing that. Yeah. All good, man. All good. I feel like you've been on the right side of the art form of stand up and making sure that it remains relevant and somehow doesn't turn into something that People used to do back in the day. <laughs> yeah. Like, I don't ever want comedy to be. You ever see the picture of that fucker from the 20s on the unicycle? Yeah. I bet he was the shit back then. <laughs> I bet that guy, look at me. I'm on a big wheel, single wheel bicycle. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Now no one gives a shit about that talent anymore. And I don't want comedy to turn into that. No, uh, neither so do no, I. So happy to talk. Happy you're still alive. <laughs> yeah, you too. Vaccined up yet? Or you? I am not. I'm way down I'm, on the waiting list. I'm way down on that list, and it's killing me. I'm 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 trying to get up the list. What about uh, you? You and me both. You and me both. I I thought about doing like that lady that um that Peloton instructor oh, who yeah. registered herself as an educator. Yeah, you could do that. You're you're a, well played, <laughs> Peloton lady. I know you don't want to <laughs> you you don't want to game the system because then uh, especially for you know you as a as a public person then you'll get people writing articles about you and you know you don't need that. You know what though the 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 weird thing about what I do if I really wanted to be an asshole I'm a pub I have a public persona okay fine <laughs> but my public persona is also tied to a person more famous than me therefore. Trevor Noah would take the book. Oh, yeah. It wouldn't be <laughs> it wouldn't be Roy sneaks and gets the vaccine. It would be Roy Wood Jr. of the Daily yeah. Show with Trevor Noah. Yeah, he'd be in there. 
<laughs> Can you believe Trevor Noah? Maybe they all got the vaccine. Yeah, well, he, so, I don't know. You know he probably uh, did with those uh, Grammys. I feel like they might, the Grammys might have hooked him up. Yeah, I bet you everybody at the Grammys, they probably got the vaccine every day. <laughs> that's that's a whole nother level of it. That's when I started learning about levels of fame. Like as you, as you climb the ladder, you start realizing that you haven't even unlocked the proper achievements. The <laughs> Kevin Hart special, when Kevin Hart shot that special in his living room or whatever for Netflix, and like the first joke was, one of us had COVID symptoms, so I called the doctor to come to the house. To ch- <laughs> My doctor came to, I was like, what the fuck <laughs> yeah. care is this? He's got his private doctor coming to the house. I'm I'm sag after. <laughs> Why does it matter? That's not in my plan. Well, what is this? What has this past year been like for you? Because I know we we just uh, got the news that you're you have a special plan for later this year, which I'm very excited about. But uh, but have you been able to do stand up at all over this past year? Not really. That's what's going to make this special interesting. Um, <laughs> I thankfully I had about forty minutes of material ready. Because the original plan was to tape the special. I, well, put it this way. February of 2020, I had about 50, 40 to 50 minutes that I was happy with. And I was shooting in September. And I was like, eh, I think I can find 10 minutes between now and September and still, you know, have something nice and polished by then. Whole country goes to shit. Uh, my last gig was March 14th. I did a single, a single live show at the University of Connecticut in October. And I did that because it was super spaced out. We did the show on a lacrosse field (laughs) and students were in like 15 feet, like little blankets. Yeah. Yeah. So like twice whatever Fauci was telling motherfuckers at the time that they needed to be. And I was like, okay, let's see if I can do this outdoor shit. And this, and it just, it was fine. It was a fine show and everything went okay. But in the bigger scheme of, do I want to do this three nights a week until the country comes back? I was like, no, I'm just going to go back to writing scripts and stockpiling premises. So now, as the country starts to thaw out a bit, I'm having to unpack a year of notes for which I have no audio data to go back into. I have to literally beta all of this stuff. Like, it's literally a backlog of just calling jokes to the stage. So... We're going to start the slow grind of Zoom shows and, you know, by April, I'm sure, you know, the outdoor, you know, the stuff in the park will be back and things like that. Yeah. So you kind of have to, you have to embrace some of this stuff that maybe you, you've been avoiding. I mean, the Zoom shows and the, and the outdoor shows, because I mean, that's the only way to, to, to get your material going for the, for the special. Because of that 40, you know, that 40 or 50 minutes that I felt like I had, I would say only about 25 of that flies. Because? You know, it's tonally, I'm just not sure if the country will be in the same place or have the, or the joke needs to be like, for instance, I have a whole bit about, you know, mass shootings. Well, you know, save what's happened, you know, in Atlanta, unfortunately, with the massage parlor tragedy, you know, with the Asian community, there hasn't been like that hasn't happened frequently enough on a regular enough. But it's crazy to be able to say that. I know, right? Because we were locked down, there weren't mass shootings yeah. on the regular. One, one silver lining, maybe. Correct. And so now there has to be, I can still talk about it, but there has to be a different way to get back into that topic, you know, and who knows between now and taping, you know, in the fall, maybe we are back to the same horrific bullshit that we were in in 2019. And if that's the case, then maybe I don't have to change the joke as much. So, you know, we'll see. Yeah. I mean, protest and and all of that has been a really big theme of your of your last two specials. And then obviously we just lived through this past year, which had, you know, this huge wave of that. Does that something that you still feel like you want to talk about on stage? Yeah, I think race still matters. I think there's still a lot of issues that, that need to be unpacked. And then I think there's still newer things things that, you know, that have happened over the last year that deserve some level of exploration and analysis. You know, I think if there's anything to explore when it comes to protesting, then it's probably in the realm of white allyship and what that's looked like. I mean, you had that that bit in your, I believe it was in your last special about um protesting for things that don't affect you personally. And that really felt like a a prescient, you know, bit talking about the the George Floyd protests when there was, you know, a lot of people coming out who maybe hadn't protested before uh, in those protests. You want to do something really meaningful, go to a protest that has nothing to do with you personally. That's what we're seeing more of. 
I did that for the first time. I did that for the first time. I went to a Muslim ban protest, man. Banning the Muslims, I went out there. This is what they don't tell you. When you go to a protest that ain't got shit to do with you, you can just leave whenever you want. <laughs> I never knew that was an option because I only go to black, pro I'm from Birmingham. All we do is go to black protests. And when you at a black protest, you there. There's no leaving. <laughs> you think black church long, go to a black protest. <laughs> Better pack a snack and a diaper. Ain't no sneaking off. I just left the Muslim man. They waved, see you later, thank you. I tried to tiptoe away from black protests. I got two steps away from the group. They said, where you going, brother? The struggle is this way. My bad, fam. That's on me. Dude, if you go and look at the pictures of protests, pull a Trayvon Martin protest photo and pull a George Floyd protest photo and just count the white people and tell me which one is higher. So. Is there allyship? Is there people out there? Of course. I think there's things that are changing, but I still think that there's a lot to unpack. I just think the fun thing now is really sitting back and looking at what parts will be relevant. Also, you also have to kind of figure out what the fuck the runway is going to be, bro, because Chappelle kind of changed the game with 846. You know, that was fresh cooking. That was, I think, two weeks from from shoot to, to air. I think it was a two-week runway, maybe. So yeah, that was kind of unprecedented considering how long these specials usually. You know, sometimes it's like nearly a year between when you shoot it and when it when it goes up. Yeah, yeah, that's those days are over with. Yeah, do you think is those that something that you're talking to? Because I know you're you're working with Comedy Central um, for the new special. Is that a conversation that you've had of like I want this up faster than it, than it used to? We we've had the conversation of closing that window a little bit. Um, but the, the trick is figuring out the content and the shoot style of what I want to do first, because if I'm not like Chappelle and instantly addressing something that just happened and really, you know, the, 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 everything last summer was so unprecedented, it almost doesn't feel like something that could be recreated without there being a real, a real ignition point to justify that. And the material has to be strong enough to justify that. So, you know, if I'm going to polish, if I'm going to just develop a bunch of evergreen jokes that are about things we're going through collectively that don't always go away, there's no need to rush the edit in two weeks and do that. But I also don't want to shoot something in October and have it come out in March and have the goddamn world collapse in January. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, and I then think you look like the fucking weirdo. Like things that change was, so that was fast. That was the thing that was really, you know, interesting. I tease Yvonne Orji about this, the wonderful, wonderful actress from Insecure. Yvonne had the last stand-up special to air before the shutdown. And I said, you were the, you were the, your special got in just under the wire before ideologies really started changing and people were like looking at stuff that was shot. Cause there was like a six month stretch during the shutdown where you were watching stuff that was shot before the shutdown. Yeah, definitely. And I, yeah. And I've talked and to a bunch seeing... of those people. It's so strange. Yeah. Michelle Buteau was one, uh, Beth Stelling. I think they both taped their specials the week before the shutdown. But it didn't come out until months and months so later. They literally got in. Yeah, the they wire. literally got in under the wire. <laughs> but it not not in the way that you mean, where people, you know, people Devon's got to consume it before, in a twenty nineteen yeah, yeah. mindset where it was seen and received the way it was intended. Like her HBO special was great, and I was like, that's per because because there was a time where you'd see that many people in a room and it would give you anxiety just to watch it on TV. <laughs> yeah, I know. Like, what are all those people? <laughs> yeah, I still feel that way. But yeah, I mean, so do you do you know how you're going to shoot your special yet? Have you have you figured that out? I've gone back and forth with trying to figure out I don't want to Well, I guess technically no comedian could do it before me because I'm already further down the production. <laughs> yeah, you don't want to steal stealing your ideas. Fucking I don't give a fuck. You still couldn't do it the way I'm going to do it. I do think that there has to be a change and that was already starting to happen with the way Gerard did his what Bo Burnham did directing Chris Rock's the Drew Michael no audience joint which technically was ahead of its time yeah right <laughs> should have waited to do that till uh, he couldn't have an audience I know right stand-ups playing around with breaking the format of just walking out to bright lights and flashy you know 
big stage pieces. I think we're past that. I think there is another level. I think the city will help inform some of the tone on stage, but it all starts with the material. And I think once I have the material lined out, then I can go, all right, here's some cool shots that I could do. Or here. like, I give you a perfect example, Chris Rock Tambourine. Chris starts the run about talking about divorce and porn addiction. It's a tonal shift in the show because before, up until that point, he's talking about the world, a little bit about himself, but about the world. But now he's talking about himself and they start on this wide shot that shows the entire room and it's a slow, it's a five minute long zoom where they just slowly zoom in until they're right into the fucking pores on his face. And it's one beautiful shot and it really, as a viewer, it helps to settle you and bring you into hey, this is, I'm being serious now and I'm really laying all the foundation for what the next run of jokes is going to be about. But first, you need to see me as a human. I don't know what fucking joke I got yet that's got the <laughs> Bo Burnham trick. So I need to look at that and then I can go, okay, here's some style. Do I want to go in it? Also, by the time I shoot, you figure capacities will be up in certain venues, but maybe you want to go small space. Maybe this shit goes back to speakeasies. You know, I... I yeah, I don't know, man. I, I think that there's going to be an interesting battle between... All right, so the bigger comedy... So what we talked about last year, low-key has happened, has already been happening. Comedy clubs shutting which down. Which is and... the clubs shutting down. And then when the clubs came back, they had to book more prominent acts in an effort to stay open. Or they booked these big name acts. This is something I didn't predict, but they booked bigger name acts on off nights. Like I saw where Seth the Entertainer did the Comedy Club Stardome in Birmingham, which is like, it's an A room. It's a legendary, like that room is part of comedy history for 40 years now. But he did it on like a Monday night. Still sold it out at the COVID restriction level or whatever the fuck. But the clubs are going to have to bring in those big names. And those big names can't play big, you know, theaters yet because the theaters aren't at a big enough capacity. But you're in the same predicament as me. You got to get on stage. You got to stay sharp. So I think that as you trickle that down to the open micers and the younger MCs, right, it pushes them out. But now you have a bunch of bars and restaurants that are finally back open and they need people, and they need a reason to get people in. So I think it's going to be a lot of comedians and smaller venues solving each other's problems, and that could slowly become a new norm for, you know, where comedy is consumed outside of the traditional comedy club. I also think that young people under 30, you know, they're not regular comedy club attendees. They'll go see comedy, they'll go see live comedy, but they don't always go to a comedy club. So And they don't, they, they don't have the special, money to go to a comedy club, probably. The two-drink minimum is not a fucking, that's not an easy thing to over that's plus you know, a ticket in a lot of, of cases yeah for a decent comic that's 50 dollars a head yeah so i think you're going to see a different business model start to emerge i say all of that to say that there might be some smaller venues that start popping up and if it's something that looks and feels interesting and feels right that might be the place to do the special but you don't want to do big jokes in a small room. So are these jokes big and demonstrative or is it more on the Chris Rock divorce intimacy, sharing some real shit? So, you know, that's what I have to file down first. You ain't got shit till you got an act. So we got to start unpacking that over the next. The one other bit from your most recent special that really stood out to me that I wanted to ask you about is um, the bit that's really about accepting trans people i think especially you know mentioning someone like Chappelle. oh yeah the gender pronouns you can't do that you just can't call someone a different name somebody named jack want to be called jill you can't do that you can't even do that is that is that asking too much hey man this person used to be called jack they want to be called jill can you call him jill i can't call him jill can't be calling nobody no different name because they feel like a lady. I have a sheet of paper here on the wall that says I learned all the genders. One, two, that's it. Somebody named Jack want to be called Jill. You can't do that. Meanwhile, half your favorite entertainers been performing under a fake name. <laughs> you ain't had no problems with that. I ain't finna call you Jill. Meanwhile, you, you think you think you think Ice Cube is his real name? 
you took a really interesting, uh, you know, approach to that, which I think is really different from what we've seen from a lot of other comedians. And I, you know, there's been controversies around this, but whether it's Chappelle or Ricky Gervais or, you know, sort of the, the way that a lot of comedians get into that issue is like how foreign it is, how they can't deal with, you know, accepting this, you know, new thing. They're not used to it. What? And you the really, world is changing. Yeah. <laughs> what the fuck? And you really went at it from a different angle, which I thought was really interesting and really funny. And that the fact that you were able to make it really funny coming at it from a, from a perspective of we need to accept this. So I was just curious how you, how you decided that that was something that you wanted to talk about and, and finding that way into it. It wasn't my, my goal, especially with dynamite, because that topic is a stick of dynamite. Um, I enjoy juggling dynamite on stage. <laughs> <laughs> I really do. I enjoy taking the topic and you're not sure which way this is going to go, but hopefully you'll trust me to land the plane. I'm trying to find, well, what's the, what's the other angle nobody has? And I know a lot of that is some residual daily show ideology from kind of what Jon Stewart and Trevor Noah kind of put in place. So I'm thankful for being, that's kind of where The Daily Show has helped to influence some of my stand-up. It was, I can't remember, it was when Diddy changed his name to Love. <laughs> He's changed his name a few times, right? Was the impetus. That was the, that was the, that was the ignition point for that thought. Diddy, it was either Love or Brother Love. You can Google the year, but it's before my special. And people just rolled with it. <laughs> Yeah, they accepted Nobody that. Nobody had a problem. Like blogs and shit were calling them love and Diddy love. And what do you think about Diddy's new name? <laughs> Answer below in the comment. <laughs> but some motherfucker just comes out that used to be Tom and wants you to call them Mary, and you act like it's a fucking problem. <laughs> and for me, it was this feeling of how does this hurt? you how does this inconvenience you you can do this and so then from there then you support the thesis with examples of other people that we've been calling random names for years solely because they told us to and hulk hogan was the one that just kind of just jumped out because <laughs> <laughs> you know it's just you know it's just sounds with your throat you know, you're just making sounds with your throat. Like, what the hell is the problem? <laughs> That's not that big of a deal. Um, yeah. So, yeah, Hulk Hogan, I think in the special, I think I said somebody is he wants to be called they. And you got a problem with that. Hulk Hogan is a nigga from Tampa named Terry. And you've been calling them the Hulkster <laughs> for 30 years. That's <laughs> hey, great. There's just this lack. There's this there's this defiant rejection without analysis that I think we sometimes, you know, go through. And I just think it's just it's it costs you nothing. It's borderline lazy. You know, it's just that's not the path, you know, for me through that issue. The part that I now the part that I didn't get on the special and now I have a dang I call these danglers where I have a great follow up, a joke that makes a follow up point but I don't have the initial point to attach to it. So now I have nothing. <laughs> yeah. um, what was that part? The, the follow-up to that whole point was that, on the other hand, you know, people need time to fucking learn the new name. Like, my mom is, and this is so embarrassing to say, my mom is terrible with the names of women I've dated. Like, my mom... <laughs> From high school, from high school, my mom will call the new girlfriend the old girlfriend's name for That's about never good. three months. Takes her about three <laughs> months to get on board with the new name. And she didn't mean nothing by it. She's just stuck in one thing for a long ass time. And these are habits that we're having to unlearn. You're taught pronouns he, she for two years straight and fucking what, K through two. It's he, she, hers, his, the boy, and and it just just give me a second to get it right. I might, I might, but I'm going to consciously try. And so the thing that, and this is the bit that I don't even know if it works on the next special because it just it feels like it should be attached to the conversation about trans and pronouns, but just about how I've tried to personally avoid anything gender specific for for fear 
of messing up and being seen as it being deliberate. You know, you can ask, um, you know, what's your, what's your preferred pronoun? You know, like that took a second to kind of, you know, figure out, but the cool- To catch on, yeah. But that's the cool thing about the internet also is that if you're meeting a motherfucker for the first time that you don't know, like if I'm meeting people, I'm taking meetings or trying to pitch a show, I can dig on you real quick and find out. Yeah. You can find out. I can find out. Your Twitter will probably inform me to my approach to greetings and stuff like that. So it's just something you just have to be conscious of. And if you're conscious of it, then that just means you care about other people. And it's not that hard to do. Coming up, Roy talks about his new podcast, looks back at his late night stand-up debut on Letterman, and the first time he auditioned for The Daily Show. He didn't get the gig for another seven years. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. If you're enjoying this episode, there are so many others you should check out. In addition to Roy Wood Jr., we've had at least seven other Daily Show correspondents and contributors on The Last Laugh, including Samantha B, Lewis Black, Larry Wilmore, Dulce Sloan, Michael Costa, and two conversations with Jordan Klepper. Hit subscribe and you can listen to all of those episodes and everything else from our free archive and you'll be the first to hear new episodes when they drop every Tuesday. And while you're at it, please leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts to let us know how much you love the show and who you want to hear next. Now, back to Roy Wood Jr. So I want to talk a little bit about The Daily Show, which now you've been doing from home for about a year, I think. So what what is that? What has that year of doing The Daily Show from home been like for you? I mean, I'm sure you never imagined that it would be this long. No, I don't think any of us. This, this is when I knew this, this is when I knew for sure it was going to be a minute. Me and some of the other correspondents, like we're always trading tech tips. Of what did you do? And how did you get that shot? What was your light set up? <laughs> yeah. Because all of a sudden you have to do it all yourself. Yeah. When I finally made the decision to buy a green screen or re- request a green screen or whatever. Yeah. And then Costa you didn't was, have to buy it yourself. <laughs> and then Michael Costa was like, I think we should get teleprompters. <laughs> and I'm like, <laughs> Yeah, 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 we, we should. should have teleprompts. <laughs> yeah, you're fucking right, we should. So that part of it was like very, very, um, it was very telling to say the least. You know, we all thought that it was going to be, you know, a quick six month stretch. And boy, were we wrong. Yeah, I don't know. I yeah, miss I don't going know when, out on the road. And you'll be back. You know, I'm not going to lie in that capacity. I do miss going out on the road, but I also kind of feel like it's for the better, you know? Like, this is 100% for the better. Are there any um, bits that you did on The Daily Show over this past year that really stand out to you as ones that you felt worked maybe better from home than they would have if you had been in the studio? To be able to do more sketch stuff, I think we did we did a fake movie trailer called Sweatpants of Glory early in the <laughs> pandemic. 
where they were saying that to be a hero, all you need to do is stay home. Mm, and yeah. so it's just a movie trip. A man in a world where he just watches TV. It doesn't <laughs> like it was that. It was it's been fun to use the space around the house because it's almost like a new set piece, you know? It's like a new place where you can go and play a little bit. Everything else has been fine. Uh, the green screen stuff all works. The field pieces work. It's been difficult finding places to make the field pieces feel more active because you're just in a chair. So, you know, that's made for more creative cutaways and more creative jokes and graphics humor and stuff like that. So thankfully, you know, there's enough people on the show that like, I feel like they know what the hell they're doing. So they know how to jazz up anything that looks a little stagnant. Uh, but we've been able to have, you know, still the same very meaningful conversations that we would have, you know, on the road. Only now I don't get that sweet, sweet food per diem. <laughs> yeah, that's tough. <laughs> what about how the show has, has changed at all since uh, since Biden took over? Because I know that's always sort of a, a conversation with these shows is how they evolve based on the president. Obviously, you've really only, you know, you got there sort of during the 2016, beginning of the 2016 campaign in 2015. And now, and so you basically have only been there with Trump in a way. Um, so what what has it been like to be there without Trump as the central figure of everything? I would say the biggest change is figuring out, all right, so with Trump in office, there was two, it was twofold, right? Every Every day there's a fork in the road creatively. Do we cover what people need to know about or do we cover what people are all talking about? And that's always trying to find the which is the upside to what's going to 45 minutes is that we've been able to kind of tackle both buckets a yeah, little can more do often. Both, yeah. But that was always the debate. Oh my God, this environmental thing is happening and it's going to kill all the things and kill all the stuff. Oh my God, <laughs> Trump just put kids in cages shit which one like that becomes the bigger issue whereas now with biden it's all right what's happening with the policy now what are they doing what are they planning and then it's oh my god look at all of these crazies that are still pushing back and dealing with the fallout of mm -hmm. trump yeah like, we're still kind of dealing with all that with all the the aftermath it seems like we will be for a while you know what the daily show is like dealing with trump like this, this, this analogy isn't going to make sense. You ever take a big shit and then you flush and you think you're done and you're getting ready to leave and handle other business in the house. <laughs> and then you look back at the toilet and there's still four skid marks, <laughs> and you, but you still got other shit that you've got to deal with in the house, but there's some skid marks that you've got to, but still there. The, so every week is the constant battle of there's a new skid mark every week. There's a new skid mark. Ted <laughs> like, Cruz, uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene. Yeah, there, there's there's always something in the week. But then, ooh, look, stimulus checks. Ooh, look, they're getting the vaccines out at a higher rate than the previous. Ooh, but look at that skid mark over there. <laughs> yeah, got to clean that shit up. It's not bad news, crazy news. It's progressive, you know, here's some progress that's being made, or do we even know that it's progress? We haven't had time to really even dig deep into it because we're still cleaning skit marks. It's the fifth time we flushed this fucking toilet. <laughs> so it's been that. It's It's been kind of juggling those two quadrants, you know, at the same time. Yeah, no, totally. What about, you know, the, the one of those things that we learned from this election and, and that we're still kind of unpacking is the increase in black men and Latino men specifically voting for Trump. I mean, what did you what did you make of that? I think that there's a lot of people in this country that are at a point where they vote for their self-interest. Voting, unfortunately, as a minority sometimes feels like having to constantly put others before yourself. And if you've been wronged enough, long enough, then you start feeling like whoever's going to promise you the shiny thing, you throw logic to the wind. You go, he said he's going to do it, so I didn't vote for him. You know, I think that, you know, I, I, have, I have Trump voters in my family, you know, so... It's not something that I'm very far away from, you know, and those family members that have, you know, that made that choice, you know, and in some weird capacities, I get it, you know, because when you look at the way Democrats have always, we're going to give you apples, but they don't give you quite all the apples they promise. And one of the apples might have been bruised, but you got apples because the other motherfucker wasn't going to give you <laughs> no apples. So it's this idea that, you know, 
I'm tired of bruised apples or, you know, or half the apples you promised. So I'm just going to go with somebody completely off the rails. I think that's the thing that remains to be seen down the road is if those people will continue to vote. Because the thing that they also don't mention is that a lot of these people that, that started voting for Trump, they were first time Republican voters as well. These weren't like career republic like the same people Mexican is voting for Trump. He wasn't rocking with Mitt Romney against Obama. It was because it was Trump, yeah. Correct. So I think there's that's also something that remains to be seen as to whether or not that's a long lasting whether that part of it remains, you know, going into midterms, which is why, you know, seeing people with who are continuing to push Trumpism in their platforms, seeing if that's the way to, oh, I'm just like Trump, but I'm like, and I'm more progressive, like I'm better. Like, will that carry over? I think that's where the cause for concern is like, okay, is this a norm or did y'all just believe the charlatan? Yeah. Yeah. Can anyone else pull off what what he was able to pull off. Correct. In terms of connecting with people who felt left out and disenfranchised, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I was reading an interview that you did probably six months ago or something, and you were t- they were talking about the vaccine. And you kind of said, you know, I'm not sure I want to be first in line for the vaccine. And I was curious, uh, you know, how you're how you're feeling now. Yeah, I think enough of that vaccine went out that we can go in on jump on board. <laughs> Because this is an issue. I mean, you know, <laughs> hesitancy, vaccine hesitancy, you know, and especially in, uh, you know, communities of color, is oh, something yeah. that, that people are worried about. Oh, well, yeah, you know, if you're black, you got to be leery about it. And also, they rolled that vaccine <laughs> out too fast. How y'all got three different vaccines <laughs> that quick? No, I think if we was going to all turn into walking dead zombies, it would have happened by now. So I think we'd yeah. know by now. Yeah. yeah so you feel pretty comfortable now yeah, about, about okay getting it. it. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. I mean, that's that's what it's going to take for us to get get back to it. So. Let's talk about the podcast a little bit, Roy's Job Fair, which is very, it's a, it's, it's sort of unlike any other comedy podcast out there. I got to hear the, uh, the first episode today as we're talking and really enjoyed it. And I think by the time people hear this, a few episodes or a couple episodes might be out. How did this kind of come to be? Were you reluctant to join the, the podcast world? You seem to have some, some reluctance in, in, in being a, a podcast host. <laughs> For a couple of reasons. Okay. 12 years of terrestrial radio will PTSD a man because it's not easy. Even if it's just an hour a week, it is not easy coming up with things that you are interested in that the general public is also interested in. Number one. Number two, I wanted something that would be fun and if I could make it informative or something for us to all commiserate together, because I want people who listen to this podcast to feel like, you know, you're a part of this world. You are. You're we're all whether you're unemployed or the president of a company, we're all in a different part of the employment life cycle at all times. And I think that's the one thing we all have in common. It's one of the many things I think we all have in common as a people. You know, sports was taken. Food was taken. Relationship and sex talk is taken. You know, these are all common connectors, you know, across all demographics of people. So I didn't feel like I really had anything. And then the unemployment over the summer when unemployment, you know, I think it was almost 30 million at one point. You know, it was it was really bad in this country. The original idea was just we're just going to talk about job openings. I'm just going to talk to people who hiring and just ask you questions about your job and just, you know, we'll see what the fuck happens. Then the more I thought about it, well, if you work, you're probably also stressed. Maybe you need to laugh. Well, what if you hate your boss? Maybe the maybe somebody should tell a story about the time they hate that. But yeah, that'd be funny. Let's add that in too. And then the next thing you know, you have this, I don't know, it's a fucking pot pie. <laughs> of just work-related conversations. And some of it is very, you know, serious. And, you know, these are issues that people are facing. And then some of it is also just hard last, man. And that's what I wanted the balance of the show to be, because it's just about just like, it's literally, tell me about your worst or your first job. Okay. You tell me about a scam you used to pull it. Where it we have some good ones, by the way. Oh my God. <laughs> so much stealing goes on at grocery stores. <laughs> Yeah, like the Waffle House conversation was pretty funny. Yeah, and so and that's and that's fun. It's like okay, this company is hiring for management and all of this other stuff. But also, yes, Roy, we watch the Waffle House fight videos when they <laughs> air. The fact that there is a corporation sitting in a boardroom and that we have to know what's going on in our stores. So yeah. you, <laughs> they're watching those videos. Somebody at Waffle House is on World Star. Every week. <laughs> Just searching. Searching for their corporation. They got the Google alert. Uh, yeah. Uh, 
So what were what were some of your uh, you know worst jobs when you were when you were kind of uh, maybe starting to do stand up but still had to have a day job? For me, I did a lot of temp service work. So you end up in construction, or at least back in those days, where temp service in the sense that I would go to like labor ready or labor finders and these places where you go in at six o'clock in the morning. You literally there's a sign up sheet. And the guy just goes down the sign-up sheet. And as construction sites and, you know, a lot of manual labor places, they would just call in, send me three workers. Y'all, send me five workers. And they would call your name. You'd hop on the truck. You'd get dropped off. Five o'clock, you get picked up. You got a check in your hand by 5.30. It's fireproof. Like, I know I'm not going to, even if I get fired from this job, like, I don't have to show up tomorrow if I don't want to. Yeah. There's so, always a new, uh, a new gig. So that gave me a lot of flexibility. You know, when I was on the road, that's often what I would do during the day. If I was in a city, you know, back in the, back in the good old days, <laughs> there was, how can I put it? Like comedy clubs. Now the average comedy club is a three night venue, maybe four. If there's a special event. When I started, there were numerous five night comedy clubs and a couple of clubs were six nights. So the Comedy House Theater in Columbia, South Carolina, um, and this is going into the worst job. This is the worst job I had fucking ever. Oh my God. Uh, the Comedy House Theater in Columbia, South Carolina is a, was a six night venue. As an MC, they booked you for two weeks straight so that you had time to really get a feel for the club and get a feel for the, you know, like they really wanted you to get better. So I was in Columbia, South Carolina for two weeks straight with Mondays off. So I would go, I would get to town Sunday night and Monday morning I would get up and I would fucking go to labor ready. And I would work from 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. and be at the comedy club by (laughs) 8. I don't do think most set. comics were doing that. Monday through Friday, that's what I did. Saturday, Sunday, I took off because, you know, I'm a working man now. I worked <laughs> by 40. Yeah. Was there a moment when you realized you didn't have to have a day job anymore when you could make your living doing comedy? Mm, I'd say when I got my apartment in Birmingham, I started in 98. So this is probably seven years in, 2004, 2005. 2005, maybe I was started selling print call CDs. So I had merch and merch was supplementing my income in the place of working temp service stuff. I had a CD that came out in 2003, my first print call CD, and that did really well. But it wasn't until 2004 that I really felt comfortable, you know, but it, like that stuff, man, I, I don't miss that at all. And like, even still, like even now, and I don't know if this is healthy paranoia to have, I still have my Golden Corral uniform from Tallahassee. <laughs> Just in case you have to go back? Miss Darlene, what happened, I never officially resigned from Golden Corral in Tallahassee. I just kept getting gigs and she kept putting me, you know, from five days on schedule to four days on schedule to two days on schedule to being on call. And then I would miss my own calls because I would be on the road. And she said, I tell you what, baby, just call me back when you're ready for me to put you back on the schedule and I'll make sure it happens. And I said, yes, ma'am. And that was the last time I was at Golden Corral, <laughs> but I still have my uniform. Look, I'm, I'm blessed and I'm thankful for everything that I have right now. But if I got to get back to it to feed the boy, then that's just what I got to do. I'll call. (laughs) If Trevor Noah fired me tomorrow, I will call Miss Darlene (laughs) as soon as I got off the phone. And I'm like, hey, I'm back. (laughs) (laughs) I'm back, baby. I imagine that one really big moment in your comedy career was uh, probably just a couple years after that when you had your late night stand-up debut on Letterman in, in 2006. What did that mean to you at the time to to get that that opportunity? That was huge. That was groundbreaking because it officially helped to bonify me in the eyes of a lot of comedy club bookers on the road who were trying to come up with reasons to not book me. The thing that was really <laughs> cool about that year was that I also did Deaf Comedy Jam in the same calendar, in the same year, in the same 12-month stretch. I did Letterman October of 06. I did Def Jam the following July. To be able to step on both of those programs that are so polar opposite of each other. I don't know. I know there's a lot of things you can hang your hat on, but, you know, I'm very proud of the fact that, you know, somebody thought enough of my comedy to go to Letterman and then also to go to Def Jam, which is exactly the range that I wanted to be able to reach, you know, with some of these thoughts. The, uh, the I was rewatching the Letterman set and you, it, there's definitely a, 
uh, through line from the material you were doing then to now and talking about civil rights and and you get a huge uh, applause break I think for for one of your one of your lines in that area what do you remember about the the actual experience of doing that that set on Letterman I remember Pete Rose not giving a fuck he was the he was the couch guest that night. <laughs> he wasn't rude. He just didn't give a fuck. There's a big difference. <laughs> I was like, uh, big honor. I'm a huge baseball fan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> Whatever, motherfucker. Where's the snacks? <laughs> and I remember, is his name Biff? Um, the oh, yeah, stage, Biff, yeah. stage manager. Right before I walked out, Biff whispered in my ear, don't screw this up. <laughs> More Latinos than American and black people while we're on minorities. Did you know that? More Latinos than black people, man. And what's funny about that is that in some countries, in some, some parts of America, blacks and Latinos don't get along. It's just like that in America. I got a buddy back home. He can't stand the whole Latino movement in America. Man, only reason these Latinos getting rights, only reason Latinos getting rights and immigration green cards is because of the struggles black folks put down during the civil rights movement, which is true. But that was the whole point of the civil rights movement. <laughs> to be sure that everybody got rights. Am I right? That doesn't make any sense to me. As a race, you cannot march for equal rights and then get jealous when another race starts trying to get equal <laughs> rights. What are you talking about? I heard Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech. He did that for all races. It wasn't a Puerto Rican disclaimer at the bottom of the speech. <laughs> He didn't march on Washington. I have a dream. Blacks and Protestants, Jews and Gentiles, but no Puerto Ricans or Cubans unless they got a good curveball. I have a dream. I'm Roy Wood Jr. Thank y'all a lot. I was horrified that night, but it was a good night. New York never smelt so good than the night I walked out that Ed Sullivan Theater back out into the street. And like a week later, I was in Des Moines, Iowa. (laughs) (laughs) Back to the grind. I hadn't even moved to LA yet. I'd made the decision. I was moving to LA, but I was still in Birmingham. (laughs) I did Letterman on like a, we take Monday, I think for a Friday air or some shit. And like the next day, I'm doing morning radio in Birmingham. Three days later, I'm in a Ford Focus. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Iowa. Yeah. But that's never the a job, line. bro. I mean, that's the job. Yeah, it's like yeah. one one day you're high and then the next day you're on I-80 with a 40 mile an hour crosswind trying not to get blown off the freeway so you can go get paid $125 tonight. Yeah. I mean, and there was another, you know, nearly 10 years between that Letterman and and actually getting on The Daily Show. And I know you you auditioned much earlier than that. I believe it was the same same audition that, that they hired Wyatt Cenac back when it was Jon Stewart. Yeah, that was a rough audition, bro. That was a rough audition. I was curious, you know, what you learned sort of in the interim that you feel like made the, the second time when you went back so much better or, or at least <laughs> led to you getting the getting the job i understood the concept of having a point of view as a performer i viewed the daily show the problem is that steve carell made it look so easy that i just said oh yeah i can do that i'll audition i'm ready but i was just doing a goofy journalist spoof and not really trying to be myself a version of myself you know when i look back on that audition i had no business auditioning you know my comedy wasn't informed enough about opinions in the world and shit like that so there's there's absolutely no reason (laughs) that i should have been auditioning for the show at that time but (laughs) thankfully i got a second chance the other thing about that wyatt audition i bombed so hard he goes in and rips I left my car keys in the audition room. So Wyatt <laughs> walks out. I walk back in. Like, they're all smiling after the... Like, when you do well in an audition, <laughs> there's an afterglow of, like, 20 to 30 seconds where they all can... Oh, I really liked him. Did you like him? Yeah, yeah. yeah well, who's this agent? Yeah, let, write him down. And then I just walk in, everybody. <laughs> and I just look up. And I, I left my keys. Man. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry oh, to man. interrupt you being happy about that guy. Well, I'm glad you got the second chance and then we're able to come back. I mean, now it now it's been uh, you know, five and a half years or so you've been there. Do you think about how how long you want to do it? How when you could imagine uh moving on? I wouldn't leave until Trevor pushes me out the door. I'm having a lot of fun <laughs> yeah. covering stuff that, you know, hopefully shines a light a light on what a lot of people are going through in this country. So I'll be honest, I'm not in a rush 
to get out of the yeah. way. I'm sure you'd like to get back in that in that uh, studio when when that reopens up. Yeah, I would like to be back in studio. I do know that there's a couple of you know sitcoms and movies and stuff like that that I want to do, of course. But in the bigger scheme of things, I'm not in a rush. Not in a rush at all. So we end the, this uh, podcast by talking about some of the comedians who have made you laugh the hardest in your life. And I'd love to just run through quickly. Is there someone from your childhood who was sort of a standout uh, comedian who who made you laugh growing up? Sinbad. Also, because I watch him with my parents when you get the HBO free preview weekend once a year. Hey, kids, there was a time on this earth where <laughs> HBO just came to your house for free, just streamed to your television and your cable. So those three days would always be the greatest. Um, if we're going from childhood, you know, I would have to say Sinbad. Yeah, I mean, I watched Carlin. I wasn't old enough to truly appreciate it. But Sinbad is the one where as a 10-year-old, I could I could grasp it and completely understood what was going on. And then is there someone who you've either toured with or or been, you know, on the same bills with at comedy clubs who just uh, really gets you get you laughing like like nobody else <laughs> oh shit bro i would have to go through a long list i'd say if we're going more recently i'd go aaron jackson she's on that tiffany haddish special on netflix you can look her up aaron makes me laugh janelle james makes me laugh i like janelle i've never toured with him but i would love to work with him fucking tony rock man tony rock is just the most it's charismatic and slick but it's smart. I don't know how to say it without it sounding like I'm talking sideways about him because I'm not. But like, it's the most slick way I've seen smart material delivered where it's like you can look at someone and go, OK, I think I have this person figured out. You don't know shit about this man. And he's a dad now. So I know that's a whole nother hour of material. So, you know, I would love to see, you know, where he's going to go you know, with his act, you know, once things stall back out. And then finally, is there someone who's kind of uh, an up and comer or someone, you know, uh, of a of a generation below you who you want to shout out, who you think uh, people should check out? Ooh, I might, I might have to come back to you on that one. There's Niles Abston. I like, he's a young brother out of Mississippi. He put his own special up on YouTube last summer. So, you know, he ain't waiting. He ain't <laughs> yeah, waiting to get the, chose. That's the new move. Yeah, but he chose himself. So, you know, guys like that, I think I think that's that's probably where I'll stop for right now. I, I'd hate yeah, that I don't have awesome. anybody else on my mind right away. I feel like no, an asshole. Uh, Yodoye Travis, I like Yodoye. It's it's dark and thoughtful. Yeah, we'll, 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 we'll hold with those two. Cool, man. Well, this was a lot of fun. Thank you so much for uh, talking with me for so long. And, um, you know, I've just been a fan of yours for, for a long time. And, and I really appreciate you, you sharing all this. All good, man. Well, good talking. All right. Oh, man. Just a huge thank you to Roy Wood Jr., not only for coming on today's show, but also just for being so supportive of my work as a comedy journalist over these past few years. I'm really looking forward to his new hour, but you can also check out his previous two specials, Father Figure and No One Loves You on Paramount Plus right now. And definitely subscribe to Roy's Job Fair wherever you get your podcasts. It's really great. If you want to support The Last Laugh, please help us out by leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. We want as many people to hear this show as possible, and you can help by spreading the word and sharing it with your friends. You can find me on Twitter at Matt Wilstein and at thedailybeast.com. And if you're not already, please follow at Last Laugh Pod on Instagram, where you can see photos and videos from all of our episodes. The Last Laugh is distributed by Acast for The Daily Beast, with audio production by Jesse Cannon. Our theme music is by Claude, who you can find on Instagram at claude.mp3. You can find this show every week on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. And as always, you can find show notes and highlights from each episode on thedailybeast.com. See you next week. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80 percent less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. 
Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 